This is a Triple J podcast. Why does tea have an optimal drinking temperature? What's the best vessel to get water colder, quicker? And where do snakes get off being so damn venomous? Welcome to Science with Dr. Carl. My name's Lucy Smith. We dip into these questions and more. Let's jump in. Today is a little bit different. It is Thursday, February 29. We've had a text come through saying, question, has there been another time that Dr. Carl had been on air on Triple J on a leap year? Ah, look, thank you so much for the advance warning. So I was able to look up some website called Main Facts and it turns out the previous time almost certainly was Thursday in 1996. Were you born then? I was. I was two years old. Right. <laughs> so in 1996, I had just fit, uh, I was still doing part time shifts at the kids' hospital as a medical doctor, but I stopped full time work because certain TV stations were saying that vaccinations didn't work and we were seeing dead babies. I was, had started off my quarter of a century career as a test driver of four wheel drive vehicles. I had been a TV weatherman since I'd left the doctor's hospital, the kids' hospital, and had to leave under a cloud because I know you'll find this hard to believe. I said that meat had fat in it. I got into trouble with the Australian Meat Board. And I'd started off as a science communicator and I was now one year into being the Julius Sumner Miller Fellow at the University of Sydney. And on Thursday the 29th in 1996, almost certainly I would have come here when you were two years old, probably listening down in the gong at Taraji. <laughs> <laughs> your parents saying, hey, listen to this, this is rubbish. Dr. Carl's on, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So basically 28 years later yeah, it happened again. the next time that you are doing science with Dr. Carl on Triple J right here. So I would encourage people to text in, send in their questions because this is, you know, this doesn't happen very often is what I'm saying. That's right. And with regard to people who are born on this day, they are called leapers or leaplings and certain governments of the world have just made an arbitrary decision, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, etc. that if you're born on the 29th, mate, just to make the paperwork easy, you're born on the 28th of February or the 1st of March. It doesn't matter when you were actually born. This is what we're saying because we're a government and and we run you, fascist imperialist suppressors of the honest working class proletariat. Make uh, a decision is what they're saying. Yeah, they well, made it for you. Rita from Brisbane's actually texted mm-hmm. in and she wants to know, hey, Dr. Carl and Lucy, can you please explain how a leap year occurs and where the extra hours go when it's not a leap year? Ah, if you look at the Earth as it travels through space, it does two motions. One is it spins on its own axis. We call that rotation. That's roughly once every 24 hours. And then it does an orbit around the sun and then comes back to the same position. And unfortunately, it's not an exact number of spins. It's not 365. So Way back on the 1st of January, way back in 45 BC, Julius Caesar, who was so modest that he shoved another month into the calendar called July, and then his uncle called Augustus, thought, oh, bugger this for a joke, I'm going to do it, and he's shoved in August. Have you ever wondered why October, oct meaning eight, is not the eighth month, but the tenth month? Oh, yeah. And November, nov, meaning nine, is the eleventh month, not the ninth, and December, de- decem, ten. Because Julius and his uncle ah. each shoved in an extra month after him themselves. That's Getting going to back annoy to the story. me now. Yeah, okay. That, it annoys me in a quiet way. <laughs> so uh, Julius had um, clever mathematicians back then. And ha- how they did mathemat- mathematics without the 
Arabic numerals, you know, the one, two, three that mm. we have. They used M and X and C. They could do mathematics, but G was hard. And their mathematician was saying, it's not 365 days and we've gone out of sync. And it mattered because you'd say, okay, it's a whole year. We're going to have a religious festival to the God of spring. And it's the middle of winter with you know, snow oh. coming down. So you have to have a good calendar. And he... So it turns out that the Earth goes around the sun, it does this orbit every 365 point, almost a quarter, 0.2422. And 2.5 was close enough. So he said, let's just chuck in an extra day every four years. And that gets us closer, and we'll reset the calendar, and that gets us closer so we won't drift out, so spring doesn't happen when there's snow falling out of the sky. But the trouble was it was just a little bit off. And that worked out over the next one and a half thousand years to 11 days. So in the 1500s, Pope Gregory came up with a new rule, said, okay, we've got the leap year where every year that's divisible by four is a leap year. And then he said, except, and this is the except. Those years that uh, finish in zero, zero, they are not leap years unless they're divisible by 400. So 2000 was a leap year, 2100 is not. 1900 is not. And that gets us closer to the 365.2422, I think it is. That's why we have leap years. Okay, well, if you want to be part of history today, a Thursday, February 29. Only happens every 28 years. Yes, this is it. 0439757555. We're going to start here with Cassie from Sydney. Dr. Cassie, what's your question? Hi, um, I'd love to know why do kids love getting dizzy, but as adults it makes us feel sick and Mm. why do they tolerate that feeling more than what we do and is this a thing that it seems to get worse as you age? Yeah. Really messy, but uh, we're getting closer to an answer. So we're (laughs) looking firstly at a subset of motion sickness. Um, and motion sickness is complicated. I used to get seasick all the time, but as I got older, in my case, I got less seasick. So every time I go to Antarctica, ninety-five percent of the of everybody is incapacitated, and I'm one of the five that doesn't get seasick. Wow! And it's related to some. We found these nerve cells in the brain that are related to motion sickness, and we only found them out in February. Like, in fact, now it's February, this month. Yeah. For an extra day. Um, and they seem to be involved with all sorts of chemicals, including some made by the gut called cholecystokinin. So they're part of motion sickness. Now, there's another factor, which is that the kids are shorter and they've got a higher power to weight ratio and they've got less distance between their heart and their brain. And so the first thing we noticed when we were travelling around Australia in this fall drive stuff is that when you come to a fence, the kids can hang upside down with their knees over the fence for five minutes. You try hanging upside down next to them and after about a minute you're going, no, it hurts, there's too much blood in my brain. And then the, the whirling around, I think that is a different subset of the motion sickness cells. I think we're going to find that there's a whole new can of worms, or if I'm trying to introduce a new phrase into the Australian language, a whole new box of frogs. Mm. Try and use that today (laughs) if you could to spread around. So the answer is we don't know. We think it's something to do with motion sickness, but we're just still discovering motion sickness. And you think we would have worked it out years ago. I know. Isn't it funny, Cassie, you see these kids on playground apparatuses spinning around. I can't even look at my phone in the back seat of a car without feeling sick these days. 
Um, but on the other hand, you have so much more wisdom. That, that's it. And now I know, yeah. really nice earrings. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, exactly, I can afford nice things. Cassie, thanks so much for your question. We've got Brendan in Maitland here. Brendan? Dr. Brendan. What do you want to know? Hey, doctors. So my question is, um, do you sweat more the more water you drink? Because mm. I never used to drink that much water, and now I have a lot, and I am dripping every day. Mm. Ah, the water normally doesn't come out through the sweat. It comes out through thermoregulation. So surprisingly, you as a human can withstand temperatures up to 90 degrees centigrade, providing you can sweat. So that means that firstly, if you're in a hot sauna, sorry, a wet sauna where it's a, you know, 100% humidity, forget it, you're going to die. But if you've got a dry sauna, Providing you've got enough water in your body to keep on being able to generate sweat, you can survive 90 degrees centigrade. So almost certainly what has changed is your thermoregulation as you've got older at one second per second and one year per year, Brendan, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And so if you drink more water, uh, you're generating more urine. Are you still generating a nice light-coloured wee? Um, yes and no. I mean, I drink two litres a day now and it's still sort of not as clear as I would if I drank six beers. Whoa. Um, Well, God invented beer to show that he loves us and wants us to be happy. True, it says so in the Bible. Mm. But you shouldn't have too much. I'd stick to more water. And so the sweating thing almost certainly is a different environment or altered thermoregulation of your body as you get older. And also, as you get older, you tend to lose your thirst reflex a little bit and it gets confused with food. Oh. And so you think, oh, I want something. And what you really want is water. But you think, oh, I'll just have a lovely biscuit. Did you know I discovered that those scotch biscuits come in chocolate? Yeah. What do you mean, yeah? Dipped on the bottom. Hang on, wait a second. Yeah, so these are the, the rectangular bottom. biscuits. They're three by two, and they've got a vertical groove so you can split it and then put it into your cup of tea. Yeah. And they've got enough structural integrity to stay together. Mate, the other day I discovered that they come in a chocolate-covered variety. So yummy. Why didn't you tell me? I know. I should have. Mate, how long has this been going on without <laughs> me knowing about it? I've been keeping it from you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, look, Brenda, we don't have a good answer except you're just getting older and you've got altered thermoregulation, but you should have a light-coloured wee, so drink, keep drinking water. Water is good for you. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Thank guys. Bye. we got Sean in Brisbane here. Now, Sean, you've got a question about snakes. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering why some venomous snakes are so deadly. Like, mm. I read that the inland Taipan, like, one dose has enough lethality in it to kill a hundred humans. God. Mm. Why? Um, what are they doing being so venomous? Yeah, yeah and, and what's their normal food, uh, Like Short? small mammals. Okay, so it's not that they've got to deal with an animal weighing a tonne, yeah. or even like us, the mythical 72 kilograms, but something like a couple of kilograms. Okay, this goes back to something very clever I learned from a colleague of mine, Grant Lewis, who is not an evolutionist, but who said this very clever sentence. Evolution is not perfect, just good enough. So it's evolved the venom. And, oh, by the way, I was just reading this in Nature the other day, that um, snakes have the ability to evolve 10 times faster than we humans. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Anyway, so what they've done is they've evolved something that will knock off what they're after. 
And then if we humans come along, and we haven't been around as long as the snakes, so we've existed as Homo sapiens sapiens for around 200,000 years. There are a whole lot of other Homo sapiens, like there was, there was Florensis and Neanderthalus and, and Homo heidelbergensis, and, but we're the one who made it through. Um, and it's just an, it's just an accident. Mm. Evolution is not perfect. It's just good enough. And it's just unfortunate that it gets us. What you could do if you get bitten by a funnel web spider is evoke your shape-changing abilities and turn yourself into a dog because it got some degree of resistance to funnel web venom. Not, not 100%, but better than us. Dr. Carl, yeah, well, but... we can't do that. No, we can't let off that the world is run by shape-changing reptiles from the planet Zog. No. That's a secret. Did I say that out loud or think it? <laughs> you said that out oh, loud. Oh, no, it didn't happen because it only happens once every four years. That's it. Hey. Never happened. This could disappear. Sean, does that help? Kind yeah, uh, yeah, it does. Just okay. by accident, I guess. Yeah. Oh, they have so a definition of overkill sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. John, uh, that is a beautiful phrase, and I'm going to steal that. Absolutely. Thank you very much. If I, oh, wow. if I could, no thank you. Pleasure. Overkill. We got Hester in Armadale. Hester, you got a question about our favourite thing, tea. <laughs> Hi, doctors. Long-time tea drinker here. So a few years ago, I lived in England and a friend happened to kind of ruin tea a bit for me when he said, no, this tea is not at the optimal t- drinking temperature. Oh. And I realized that actually there is like this optimal temperature range. It's very narrow in which the tea tastes really good. If it's too hot, it's not great. If it's too cold. And I'm interested, why would that be? Ah, now do you have tea bag tea or leaf tea? At that point, it would have been tea bag, but I drink tea leaf tea as well. Ah, and what's your favourite breakfast blend, and what's your afternoon blend? <laughs> oh, I have a decaf on the afternoon, um, but in the mm. mornings it could be a lapsang souchong blend, or it could be Ooh. Earl Grey. Okay, oh. Hester. Right. Okay. So I normally go. We we go for uh, three quarters English breakfast and one quarter Earl Grey because the bergamot Ooh. oil lifts it up. Yeah. And I learned in India that uh, oh, actually, it was interesting. They, they they call tea bag tea dip tea. In other words, it's not real tea. Um, and they also don't take the water to boiling because if you take the water to boiling, you drive off some of the dissolved oxygen molecules, which are necessary to react with the tea leaves to bring out the optimum flavour. And so when you say flavour, it's not just one chemical. There are maybe hundreds that we know of, and they vary. Some come more forward in the on, on your tongue, you had to taste them at this temperature, others at other temperatures, and you're dead right about the optimum temperature. And the tea liquid is a dynamic thing. So sometimes, and this happens very rarely, I won't drink the tea in the morning at the right temperature, so I'll put it in the nuca and bring it back up to the right temperature again, which I can measure with a little um, infrared laser thingy, and blow me down. It doesn't taste the same. Even though it's at the same temperature, you've missed the moment. So there's sort of like a life lesson there for you that love is like <laughs> frequent flyer points. You should do it now and not save it for later. And the same goes for tea. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting because where, where I live in Armadale, we're a 1,000 metres higher than everybody else and because obviously the water doesn't boil as high a temperature, ah. I think tea here tastes better than it does, say, down south in Sydney or something like that. Ah. Yes, yeah, because mm. in both India and Sri Lanka, they do not boil it and what I used to do was insist that the tea kettle would go, with, with, with. now I just wait for it. You know how as you boil the water, as you bring it to the boil, you hear different noises as the bubbles rise from the surface? Mm. As soon as I hear the first noise, I switch it off 
and then I'd make ah. the tea with not quite boiling water and based on a sample size of one, I reckon it tastes better. So <laughs> do, have you answered the question as to why that is, though? Is there a property in the leaves? Well, or? well I, I think it's the different chemicals. They all come out at different rates and they show themselves better at different temperatures. Mm. Um but then there's another complication, which is that in general, according to something I saw on a TV program, so it must be real, that the bigger the leaf, the better the quality of the tea. And so I have my morning tea, which is what I mentioned, but I have an afternoon tea, which is Darjeeling tea, which is more expensive. But on the other hand, the, the tea leaves are very big. And they say that Darjeeling is the prince of teas. But on the other hand, they in Darjeeling the state of India, they only make 8,000 tonnes a year, but they sell, somebody sells 40,000 tonnes. So there's 32,000 tonnes being sold as Darjeeling is not fa- it's not real, but I get, <gasps> I, I, I would remind through a pathway that I think is okay. And so there's my afternoon thing. I'm, but I'm, I, with, I sympathise thoroughly about the decaf coffee in the afternoon. You want something that's not quite so jaggedy. You want, mm. you want a softer touch in the afternoon. Yeah, otherwise there's no sleep. Awesome. That's wonderful. Thank you, doctors. Has this fulfilled you as a long-time tea drinker? Uh, yes, been yeah. drinking it since I was very small. So, yeah, yeah. it's fanatic, it. oh. you mm-hmm. could say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and there was the Australian News Network discussing on how to take drugs better. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, God, we've got Danielle from Sunbury here. Danielle, Danielle what's your question? Um, hi, Dr. Kyle and Lucy. Um, when trying to get water cold as quick as possible, should you use a plastic bottle or a glass bottle? Mm. Ah, this is, or an insulated bottle. Or insulated. This, yeah. this is actually quite a deep topic. Now, Daniel, have you heard of something called Mpemba, M-P-E-M-B-A effect? No. Look it up in Wikipedia and it's a phenomenon where apparently, and we think it's real, if you have a freezer in a fridge and you chuck in two identical containers with an identical weight of water and one is really hot and the other one is colder... Apparently, the hotter one turns into ice faster. Oh, wow. Well, oh, wow, because you'd think it's got further to go and it shouldn't. And it's sort of still up in the air and people are still arguing about it half a century later after it was first discovered. But the one, one factor is the currents of water flowing in the container. So just straight off the top, what you would want would be the most invisible container in terms of heat resistance you could possibly have, like something made out of cling wrap, like, you know, like fractions of a millimetre thick, and the heat would just go straight through it. And providing it had enough structural integrity, on one hand, you'd think the lower the heat insulation, the better. So you'd probably go stay stainless steel, very thin, and then maybe glass or ceramic. And finally, the worst one would be the insulator for cooling it down quickly. But there's this other factor of the currents. So it's not that simple. But in general, to keep it simple, I would go for the one that passes through the heat the quickest. And the easiest way to find out is just simply to shove hot water in the container. And if you can feel the heat from the outside, you know, okay, the heat travels through quickly, either from the inside out or the outside in, whichever way you want. And so uh, pick the one that has the greatest thermal conductivity. And, and this is a whole new box of frogs that you're dealing with here because temperature is different from heat, is different from thermal conductivity. They're all different things, but they're related. Cool, great. Thanks for that. We've got Josh on the sunny coast here. Josh, what's your question? Hi, doctors. How are you doing? Dr. Good. Josh, welcome. 
my question is about epoxy uh, resin. Yep. Um, I've started a new hobby of fixing up surfboards at home, and it's quite difficult to know which one to use and sort of what they are. Um, I'm just wanting a bit of insight, pretty much, and like, yeah, about it, what it is, and what what types there are. The the fundamental concept is like throwing a bunch of tangled barbed wire together. So you've got part A and part B, you've got the base of the resin and then you've got the hardener. Now the hardener can work short term or long term. It can take, you know, like hours or this so-called five-minute epoxy. And imagine that you've got these little jangly barbed wires in there but the, the, the barbs are all sort of pulled in. They're not sticking out far. And when you mix the resin and the hardener, you do a thing called cross-linking. So suddenly, instead of having this sort of soft, amorphous gel, suddenly you've got all these barbed wires that have got barbs. I'm talking about it on a chemical level. So you're thinking of chains of molecules. That's the way to think about it. And the barbs stick out and join onto other bits of barbed wire or other molecules. So suddenly, instead of being a soft, gloopy thing, it becomes relatively rigid and of course the more rigid it is the better and so the way I normally mix, mix up epoxy is I always um, squ- how, how do, you, how, do you have it from big bottles or you have tubes or what do you use? Uh, I use both I've got a, a, a bit of a mix at the moment um, yeah a couple of different types of epoxies uh, it, like a polyurethane and a, I think a polyester or polystyrene. Yeah you, you, you're going to have to match the structural integrity of your epoxy with the surrounding board because sometimes it can, if it's too strong, it can actually weaken the rest of the board. So I, I think you're on a pathway of learning a bit of chemistry, unfortunately. <laughs> Do you mind? My least favourite subject. <laughs> well, on the other hand, but you can use it practically now. And what, what, I'm guessing you're on the north coast of New South Wales or something like that. That's a real cliche. Uh, the sunny coast, Maroochydore area. Okay, you're in the sunny coast. So yeah. you've got the University of the Sunshine Coast there. Ring up the chemistry department and then there might be grounds for doing a little course in chemistry as a mature age student, not to get a degree, but just to get that block of knowledge in your head. And once you know what you're doing, mate, you'll be able to make epoxy dance. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Josh, you're going to take it to the next level. Good luck. We've got Ben in Melbourne here. Ben, you got a question about black holes. What's going on? Yeah, good morning, doctors. Um, yes, I do have a question, but Dr. Carl, if you could quickly say hello to my son, Dean, he hello, would be Dean. very grateful. Hello, Dean. The world loves you on this once in a, every four days. Yeah. So, so, yes. so my question, my yep. question for you, Dr. Carl, the black hole that uh, that was uh, either discovered or the speed at which it was absorbing matter mm-hmm. uh, last week at the uh, at the ANU. Yeah. My question is, will we here on Earth and and in our uh, galaxy be consumed by that uh, by that particular black hole? And if so, when? Ah, we won't. So this black hole turns out to be as of, you know, uh, New Year's, uh, New, sorry, leap year uh, 2024, it turns out to be the brightest known object in the entire universe. It was thought originally to be a star in our galaxy, just fairly bright, but no big deal, just a star. But it turns out to be a quasar, 
which stands for quasi-stellar object when they first discovered them, until they worked out there was stuff that was falling into a black hole and couldn't all fall in at the same time, so it would bounce off each other. So think about a bathtub, it's full of water, you pull the plug, the water's going to go out, but it doesn't go out instantly. And in the same way, stuff that falls into a black hole doesn't fall in in zero time. It's got to take time to travel that distance, and if on the way there's other stuff falling in, it'll run into it, and the black hole is spinning, and so you can get this, what they call an accretion disk around the equator of the black hole, um, many light years actually away from the black hole and it can throw stuff out and it is eating one star per day. Imagine it's eating the entire solar system per day. That's what it's doing to become the brightest object. Now, the thing is that it won't suck us in because it's too far away. Think about the sun. Now, the sun is in the middle of our solar system-ish. It's about 140 million kilometres away. If magically our sun got turned into a black hole, the only thing that would happen to us was that the sky would go dark and we'd start getting cold. We wouldn't get sucked in. We'd just continue orbiting this invisible object and the temperature would drop and drop and drop and then life on Earth would eventually wind off. So the thing is, you have to get fairly close to it to be sucked in and there are objects that orbit black holes and have done so for hundreds of years and thousands of years and providing they're going around it, they can go around it. So it's only if you're on a collision path with it you get sucked in. However, they do have this thing called the event horizon. And if you want to get away from it, you've got to fire your rocket engine so you're travelling at the speed of light. That's the event horizon. And you can't travel at the speed of light. So that's why they've got this sort of misunderstood reputation of being voracious eaters that eat everything in the universe. No, they only eat everything that's nearby. Does that make you feel a bit safer? I feel very safe now, Dr. Carl. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Ben. Claire on the Gold Coast, what's your question for Carl? Yeah, hi, good morning. Um, my question is, now that we live in a time where food is in abundance, will our bodies ever evolve past the sort of hunter-gatherer phase of storing food as fat? Mm. And uh, if it does happen, will it happen before the planet becomes uninhabitable and we may have to start the evolution, evolution process all over again? Oh, my God. Why do you ask a big question? <laughs> it's, <laughs> a Thursday. A diet. it's Thursday. It's a, it's a Thursday, Claire. What's going yeah. on? And isn't it funny that when I was a kid, a diet was what you ate, mm. now it's what you don't eat. Oh, gee. Yeah, yeah. is that interesting? Wow. Okay, so um, firstly, with the evolution, the, the overall picture is that we are in charge of our evolution in a very weak way at the moment, but it'll be major Uh, by the end of this century. So we can change ourselves. Secondly, part of the deal with excess food, you can't have a perpetual drip of food coming into your system all day. So what we have is that you eat a couple of times a day and then you store the food either as quick access or slower access. So really quick access is you've got some glucose floating around in your bloodstream. Slightly slower access is glucose molecules just joined to each other, bong, 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 as a longer molecule called glycogen, and you store that in your muscles and you store that with water in your muscles, and then longer term is fat. And so you can switch over to burning fat at a very low rate within a few hours, but you can run entirely off burning, running on fat after about 
oh, four or five days or so, you, or, or three days, you've used up all the glycogen in your muscles. And by the way, the world record for living off your own fat is 54 weeks, mm. and they burnt oh. up fat at the rate of 2.2 kilograms a week for 54 weeks and lost 100 and something kilograms and didn't eat anything except some vitamin tablets because you need vitamins and a bit of potassium so that the heart didn't go off. So is it possible for us to change ourselves? Sure. Uh, I reckon that this whole thing of having only two legs sucks because if you get a little bit happy, you might sort of fall over. Three legs is the minimum. I like four. Four wheel drive. And <laughs> and this brain out on the end of a stick, you know, sort of outside, I reckon it should be stored in the middle of your body. I reckon something like a four-legged triangle with your brain in the middle and, and, and eyes everywhere. I don't like the eyes, just only two eyes. I want to be able to see everything. So we are in control of our evolution and what genetics will take us to by this end of this century we're in right now is going to be astonishing. If you compare the difference between the Wright brothers' first flight and going to the moon and back, and that took 66 years. Mm. So in the next 66 years, we're going to see massive changes to what humans look like because we can control our evolution. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, I think yeah, it's pretty much nails it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess what, yeah. I guess unfortunately, Claire what Dr. Carl is saying is that potentially not in your lifetime is this going to happen. Oh, but we'll also increase life expectancy. Oh. We'll talk about that another okay. time. Okay. All right. Okay, I'll call back next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got Katie in Wollongong here. Katie, you got a very particular scenario. What's going on? Um, one of my coworkers was wondering what would occur if a spaceman sneezed in his helmet? Um, you get gloop everywhere and you don't want to block up the inlets and the outlets and it would be really messy and the spacesuit visor is really clean and they get a lot of trouble to keep them really clean and that would straight away look very messy. So I think it would just stay there. there. So if you go way, way back to the very first flight by an American, I forget his name, Do you, can you... Anyway, he was on a redstone <laughs> rocket and he was supposed to launch at a certain time and everybody in America was looking because this was going to be the big thing of catching up with the Russians. And um, he'd had a cup of coffee and breakfast and everything and there was a delay and there was another delay and all the cameras were looking at him. What was his name? Was it Glenn Curtis? No, that was a airplane person. Mm. Keep going, keep going, keep looking. And then um, so he'd been there for a couple of hours and all the cameras were looking and suddenly he had this big desire to urinate. And all the cameras were looking and it's not going to be like, okay, everybody in America, hold it. They're just going to come up, come to the top of the rocket, uh, unstrap the door, get me out. I'm going to go have a wee and then I'm going to go back in again. And so rather than do that, he actually weed in his suit. And so the first American flight into space was done in a wetsuit. And the way that they knew it happened was that they had electrical sensors all over his body. Now, he's lying on his back and then his thighs are vertical and then his calves are horizontal. So it's like he's sitting in a chair but just twisted 90 degrees. And this wave of urine came from his groinal area uh, and then headed up towards his chest and started knocking off the ECG thingies. And he could see everything going crazy. And very quickly they worked out what had happened and didn't actually mention it on the live radio feed. Um, and then the next astronaut went into space wearing a giant nappy. And then after that they worked their way up to getting uh, a large plastic bag with double-sided tape and little indentations so you could defecate into this plastic bag 
but on one occasion the, the faeces actually got loose and started going around the inside of the spacecraft going around in the Earth and so they had to close off the video transmission and finally they end up with a beautiful space toilet which has got spinning things, uh, spinning blades and that draws the air through. So yes, literally the faeces do hit the fan in the uh, spaceship. Uh, on the International Space Station. <laughs> so you would be able to sneeze in space. That but is a function that a bodily function that can happen. It in will space. have. If you can wee in your suit, you can sneeze in your suit. But it's going to hopefully it won't cause too much of a mess. Gosh. Does that kind of answer your question, or I've gone off topic? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I'll let him know. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> We've got Chris in Coldstream here. Chris, you got a question about heat? Yeah, Dr. Hello, Dr. Dr. Chris, welcome. My, uh, my question is, why does the sun feel hotter on some days compared to others? So I was at work two days ago and standing in the sun and it felt incredibly hot on our skin. And the day after, it didn't. And they were both clear days. So I couldn't understand why. I was hoping you could help. Yeah, very good observation about the clear days because that was going to be my first question. What was the air temperature and was the sun shining out of a clear sky on you. But we've got a new thing happening thanks to global warming, uh, which is that there is in New South Wales a big pool of hot water off the coast. Mate, this morning the humidity was 96%. Mm-hmm. 96, come on, give me a break. Yeah. So as the humidity rises, your ability to cool down via sweating drops. Now, I'm not talking about rivers of sweat. We call these micro-sweats or a glow, if you look at the right angle. And so you'll be sweating and it'll evaporate off and you'll sweat and it'll evaporate off and you cool down. But that depends, firstly, on you being hydrated enough. But secondly, that the air is fairly dry. If the air is 100% humid, there's a magic number somewhere around 37 degrees, they're talking about it now, where you die. And there are parts of the world which have been at 100% humidity but weren't 37 degrees C, but thanks to global warming they will be. But the good news is we can reverse it. Um, And that's a different story. But getting back to your specific question, um, almost certainly the humidity would be the thing. So could you, for us, Chris, keep an eye on the humidity now and then try to make up a a little pattern. You could put it down on your phone or old-fashioned pen and paper and you can win a prize if you send it in to us. Of course. Okay, so just check it out. I reckon it's the humidity, but that's a guess. We're doing science with Dr. Carl. Last round of questions. We've got Jason in Phillip Island. Jason, what's your question? Hello, doctors. Um, Just a question regarding bugs. I always feel like as a kid, we always saw a lot of bugs on the windscreens, and nowadays you just don't see it. Uh, I read a bit about the windscreen effect and how much of it is blown out of proportion, how much is just doom and gloom, you know? Yes, uh, certainly I do remember over the past years that driving, especially at sunset, you would run into more insects. There is another factor, which is the windscreen effect, which is the aerodynamics of modern cars is quite different to the aerodynamics of older cars. And so the insects, instead of just going splat, would get carried by the smoothly flowing air and squirted out the back. Nevertheless, there is separately from that, research that shows that over the last 30 years, the number of flying insects has dropped by at least 80%. Mm. Now, we've got one really, really good study in Germany, which followed this over the whole 30 years, and it was looking in areas that were wilderness. Um, You'd get different readings if you've got 
farmland and agriculture and pesticides and so forth. But the overall vibe from the scientists is that while we don't have full data, we're very confident the number of flying insects worldwide has dropped by 80%. And here's an important thing to think. If humanity vanished, the life would go on just fine. But if insects vanished... Life would change dramatically. Mm. And uh, look up neonicotinoids as well, neonic, uh, and they're a new class of antibiotic that, oh, sorry, of anti-pests or anti-insect things that in the European common market you can use only in a greenhouse. Mm. In Australia, mate, you can spray it on your breakfast. And in America, it's somewhere in between. So that chemical is going into the waters, say, in Queensland and onto the Great Barrier Reef and it has effects out on the Great Barrier Reef. So uh, the overall situation is that, yes, there are fewer insects and we're doing a bad thing with getting rid of them because we need them. Well, what have you read about it? Uh, yeah, look, I, I read about the, po- the population decline of insects and how realistically, I mean, they're not like lions or tigers where we can easily count them. They just weren't great studies into the initial numbers in the first place as well. Mm. Well, there was that German study that looked at three, three decades. So overall, mm-hmm. the, it is a real effect. It is a real effect. And now we know about it, we can do something to make it better. We've got Avery in Canberra. Avery, what's your question this morning? Hi, doctors. My question is about heat again. So when our cells, you know, they're normally at 36, 37 degrees Celsius, why on 36 degrees Celsius days do we not feel like we're functioning well? if it's the same temperature as inside our body? Like, what are the mechanisms behind it? Okay, um, two concepts. First, overall, you generate 100 watts of power, 20% of that from your brain. And so I noticed this uh, in a lecture theatre where there were 250 people and I stood at the top of the lecture theatre at the skinny door and there was this wave of heat coming out in the middle of winter from 100 multiplied by 250 people. Wow. Secondly, the heat can leave only through down a concentration gradient. A ball will not flow, roll anywhere unless it can go downhill. And so the heat from your body can't go away unless it's at a lower temperature or you do a trick like sweating. So, and by the way, I just found out from my son the other day that a while the average person burns 8,000 kilojoules a day, and you, sure, you can burn up more, you can generate more heat um, to compensate for that by, um, you can, what am I trying to say? So, uh, but you can generate more heat by having, to, and you have to have more food by doing exercise, but the world's top chess player burns 20,000 kilojoules. Wow. And, that, and that's coming out of his brain. Wow. And that's just adrenaline. Uh, that, that, that's calories and adrenaline forcing him to think. Yeah. So um, the thing is, the, but getting back to your question, Dr. Avery, it has to go down a concentration gradient. And mm. if it can't go down a heat gradient, it has to go down an evaporation gradient. So you've got to have, either have a lower temperature or lower humidity. Is that kind of helping? Yeah, that does. Thank you very Thank much. You Thanks, much. Avery. Last oh, question. Yeah. History has been made. Someone saying, morning, doctors, I don't have a question, just happy leap year to those on Earth oh. and urinating in space. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. If you want a little more Carl in your life, feel free to take a scroll through the podcast feed. Make sure you are subscribed, liked, whatever you've got to do on your preferred podcast platform. This episode was produced by Sarah Harvey and Max Laverne. My name is Lucy Smith and I'll catch you next week. Bye.
Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.